Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, why are orcas off the coast of Spain attacking boats? It's happened several times in recent months. It's not normal behavior. Is it revenge? Are they just having a bit of fun? Are they learning from each other? We find out. What should be done with 24 Sussex Drive? No prime minister has lived in the prime minister's residence in Ottawa since 2015, and the place is falling apart. Rodent infestation and all. It will cost tens of millions of dollars to make it right, but political will seems to be in short supply these days. Journalist John Valiant joins me to talk about his new book called Fire Weather, The Making of a Beast, while Nova Scotia Premier Tim Houston updates us on a series of devastating wildfires burning in his province right now. But first, the United Conservative Party and Danielle Smith eased to victory in, in the Alberta election on Monday night. We get analysis on why the NDP fell short despite what looked like a promising beginning and how the province and Ottawa will remain on a collision course over energy and climate initiatives. Let's go back out to Alberta now because of course by the time the show had ended last night, vote counting was so slow that we didn't know who had won. It looked like Daniel Smith and the UCP, the United Conservative Party, were headed towards a victory, but we weren't quite sure. Well, indeed, they did, but it was pretty close. They won a majority, um, taking 49 seats, which is above the 44 that they needed. Uh, the NDP had 38. In terms of popular vote, the UCP got about nearly 53%, 52.6. The NDP, uh, 44, which is the highest they've ever gotten. Uh, so in many ways, there were some moral victories for the NDP, but ultimately it was the UCP that won. Danielle Smith in her uh, victory speech last night quoted, borrowed a phrase from former Premier Ralph Klein saying, welcome to another miracle on the prairies. It was It was something short of miraculous, though because given the state of the economy, the UCP probably should have won this one pretty easily, but they dropped a lot of seats in Calgary. They were wiped out of Edmonton, lost a lot of cabinet ministers, and they're reduced to mainly representing about half of Calgary and every other riding outside of the two biggest cities in the province. Um, In her victory speech, again, uh, Danielle Smith says, it's time to move forward as a province. It is time to put partisanship, division, and personal and political attacks in the rearview mirror. It's time to move forward together as all Albertans, no matter who we voted for. Yeah, not exactly a hugely enthusiastic response from the crowd on that one, mind you. Uh, it, it was a pretty bitter election, right? There were a lot of attacks. That, you know, both sides focused a lot of their attacks on the other leader, which can leave a bit of a bitter taste in one's mouth at the end of it all. Um, the NDP, of course, had high hopes that they could take advantage of some gaffes on Danielle Smith's side, the unpopularity of Jason Kenney's government going back a little while when the NDP were uh, so, showing some good good gains in the opinion polls. Notley told supporters that she she will stay on as leader uh, and with more MLAs at her side than before. I'm very pleased that we'll, we, we will be welcoming at least 10 more MLAs to our caucus. Who will form part of the largest official opposition this province has ever seen in its history? So uh, some cause for celebration last night, but ultimately not really what anyone on the NDP side was hoping for. Leah Ward is vice president at Wellington Advocacy. She's former director of communications to Rachel Notley in the NDP caucus, and she joins me now. Leah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. 
So tell me a bit about waking up today. Was there, I mean, there's always, maybe it's a bit early for the, for, you know, for the assessment of where, what went right and what went wrong, but let's start with what went right because things did go right last night on both sides. Both sides seems to have, seem to have managed to achieve, uh, achieve some sort of a victory ultimately for one, one party has to win, right? Well, yeah, and you know, we did see uh, we did see Danielle Smith achieve her uh, quote unquote miracle on the prairies, and um, you know, for her, I it's it's a pretty tenuous coalition she's holding together um, to keep that majority. So you know, we can we can certainly talk about that a little bit later. But you know, you 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 mentioned already, and we heard Rachel in her own words talk about the things the NDP has to be proud of um, in terms of the the outcome last night. And you know, obviously a disappointing night for New Democrats who who were hoping to uh, to put her back in the premier's office. But you know, uh, solidifying the Alberta NDP as uh, as a, a permanent political force in Alberta is uh, is a huge legacy that that the party owes to to Rachel Notley's leadership. Um, you know, bringing in ten new enthusiastic, energized, and and uh, really uh, well qualified MLAs from the Calgary region is is a huge deal, and uh, and I, th- I think there'll be there'll be a, a mighty caucus in uh, in the opposition benches. When you look at where the NDP was in the polls a few years back, though, when Jason Kenney was sort of hitting hitting the skid, so to speak, it felt like there was momentum there. Where do you think it went wrong? I mean, I'm I'm in, I'm watching it from the outside. I watched the NDP win an election here last time around. It felt like mm-hmm. one thing that the BC NDP had done last time around that the Alberta NDP didn't do as well this time was sort of sell a vision, sell a vision of what they wanted for the province. I felt like there was a lot of time spent um, sort of trying to point out leadership issues, which is fair game, but but it felt like maybe something got lost there. Yeah, I mean... It depends where you're, you know, from which angle you're watching. So, you know, every campaign is going to have the, you know, the sort of the two parts, right? There's the propositional part where you put forward your ideas, your platform, your vision, as you describe. And then, and then you know, you work to disqualify your opponent, which is where the negative stuff comes in. And, and you know, you, you put both out there and, and you know, you, you can only control so much uh, which picks up traction. Um, so, you know, the NDP did have a lot to say about um, addressing the health care crisis in Alberta. They had a plan to bring in, um, uh, just provide uh, primary care to a million uh, additional Albertans when, when we know that's, that's a, a critical need in the province. They had, you know, good and compelling ideas around the cost of living and affordability. Um, so, so, so they were talking about, about the, the things that, you know, are pressing on voters' minds. But, you know, to, to, to your question about sort of seeing, seeing polling numbers throughout the pandemic that, that had the NDP in the lead and then, and then watching the result last night, I mean, I think it's uh, the, 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 the tricky thing about watching public opinion polls uh, and, and then, and then uh, looking at an election is uh, you have to count seats. Right. So, you know, we, right. we might have seen we might have seen overall high popularity for Rachel and she enjoys that popularity and a lot of public trust. But at the end of the day, it was always a really, really tough road for the NDP um, to, to get to that that 44 number uh, to, to hit majority territory. 
Um, they had to sweep all of Edmonton. They had to pick up the communities surrounding Edmonton that tend to lean conservative because they mix um, rural and sort of semi-urban communities. Um, they had to, to get, you know, between 17 and, and 18 seats throughout Calgary, as well as some smaller uh, urban centers uh, throughout the, the province. So that was always a really, really steep climb for the NDP. I think that, that you know, uh, a showing, you know, even even without the win that, that, that they were hoping for, to, uh, to have the entire result come down to less than 2,000 votes in a handful of ridings in Calgary is um, a pretty incredible uh, accomplishment for the NDP given given uh, that seat mass. I'll ask you to put on your pundit hat for a second here and tell me where Danielle Smith got it got it right last night, or where did she get it right through the campaign? Do you think that allowed her to to achieve this victory when there was certainly some doubt? I mean, I don't know how what the doubt was like in the province, but people mm-hmm. watching from outside, there was some doubt about whether she. There were you know there were there were quite a few things that could have taken her down during the course of this campaign. She seems to be able to navigate it uh, right through to victory last night. Yeah, I mean, doubt was key, right? So. Uh, you, there was a, a lot of people, as you say, outside of Alberta and inside Alberta who had very, very low expectations for Danielle Smith. And that meant that, you know, all she had to do was listen to her advisors who, who were clever to keep her out of the media. She did very few public appearances. She answered very few questions. Um, she didn't put herself in a position to say outrageous things, which she's very want to do. Um, and and she kept it tight for 28 days. She and, and and showed some discipline there. And you know that that was how low the bar was set for her. So that's what she did yeah. right. And and any any I mean one of the things I mean certainly the tax issue was one that came up um, seemingly quite a bit. I mean there were certainly things that I felt like the NDP handed the UCP as 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 things they could attack them on. And did they ever? And did they ever? Fairly or not? Yeah, you know, there's, uh, you know, there's, there's a temptation to look at that issue as pivotal. I, I got to tell you, I spent, you know, the day in downtown Calgary with, uh, you know, with with corporate and business people today, and mm-hmm. and I did, I didn't hear them talking about that. You know, um, right. it, it 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 really didn't gain a lot of traction. I don't think anybody was surprised to hear that Rachel Notley was going to return the corporate tax rate to to something that was a little more fair while still maintaining the the lowest rate uh, across the country. And I don't think anybody expected the UCP not to go after them for it, right? So it it really didn't didn't sink in as, as a major divisive issue in the way that I think they would have hoped. Looking back on the Alberta election last night, of course, the UCP won a majority, not a huge one, but enough of one. The 44 seats is all they needed, like 48, 49 they wound up with. Uh, and the NDP had a good night overall, not the night they were hoping for, but made some real gains in Calgary, went in with only three seats, emerged with far more than that, basically took all of Edmonton. Um, Leah Ward is with us, Vice President at Wellington, Wellington Advocacy, former Director of Communications to Rachel Notley and the NDP caucus. You were in Calgary today. I know I was looking at your Twitter feed. Um, what was the mood like? I mean, Calgary's now kind of a city divided, which is odd to say. I mean, if you've grown up in this country, one always thought of Calgary as being as blue as blue can be. And now it's a sort of a, a mix of blue and orange. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a better reflection of Calgary to see it, it sprinkled with orange. It's, you know, Calgary's a, a fairly progressive place um, in, in its own way. It's, uh, it's full of young people. It's really diverse. Um, and so I, I, th- I think this pretty accurately reflects Calgary. And uh, yeah, like I said, I was I was there today, and uh, you know the mood was 
it was intrigued, if, if, if that's the word I could use. People were sort of just, you know, like I think there was a, most people expected the NDP to make major gains in Calgary. So I think there were no surprises there um, in terms of seeing, seeing seats flip. Um, I think it was more, you know, the move is more around, you know, what does this mean? What does, you know, what, what's the next steps for, for government and, uh, and, and, and where does the NDP go from here? So it was more of a, of, of a curiosity, I would say, than anything. Yeah, which is always the way of the day after, right? Tell me about the rural, I mean, not to overstate, but there seems to be a real rural-urban divide, or at least big city, Calgary, Edmonton versus everything else divide. Uh, how, do, how does either party try to break that? Clearly, the UCP have to make gains in Alberta's two big city. I mean, especially in Edmonton, but also in parts of Calgary. And uh, the, the NDP have to find a way through in some of those other areas. Yeah, I mean, you're not wrong. It is, it is a big challenge, and I, I don't think there's really an, an easy answer for either party. You know, it, it's a big deal that the governing party got locked out of the capital entirely. Um, uh, that, you know, that, that's incredibly noteworthy. And, uh, and you know, the NDP has, has, has continued to struggle to break through in rural areas, you know, the, which isn't to say that they, there's not a lot of, or I should say, increasing support for the NDP in, in some of those rural communities. You know, we saw vote share increase. So there's more people who are, you know, willing to consider the NDP as, as as an alternative in those areas, but but no, overwhelmingly they continue to go blue, and and that'll probably be the case for some time. Um, you know, the the NDP has done things, and I think they'll continue to do things like um, having you know uh, a party representatives from rural areas that help bring in those perspectives so they can be sensitive to them. I know throughout the years in opposition, um, they they dedicated resources um, in caucus. To, uh, to to reaching out to rural communities in both through sort of municipalities, but also through sectors like you know agriculture and forestry to to, to make sure that we were plugged into those. So, uh, like I said, not not an easy answer, but definitely something both parties need to think about going forward. And I think you know, given that the UCP won government, a more pressing issue for them. And and this is always an unfair question, but if you could go back and do part of that campaign over again over that five weeks, is there one thing? Is there one journey? Would it, one element of it you would have shifted that you think? Because you're right, it was a pretty close call in those in those six or seven Calgary ridings, uh, and a Lethbridge one too. I think. Is there anything you would have done differently looking back? Do you think it might have been a lost opportunity here for for your for the NDP? Yeah, I mean it's 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 really hard to say, and and like you said, when you're looking at seats that are like currently i'm I'm watching the results and there's some seats that are going to judicial review that are you know a handful of votes right and so when you look at races that tight it it's it's almost futile to imagine that you could have done anything different um but you know and 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 if i could do anything i don't even know that i would have the power to it would be um, raising the bar on expectations for danielle smith you know i think i think um having people um, believe or, or or just expect so little of her going into that debate meant that uh, she was able to perform well, which is something um, she's she's quite good at. She's a she's a good public speaker. She's very comfortable in front of the cam- camera. That's that's sort of her bread and butter. And I and I and I wish that collectively, perhaps we all could have um, raised the bar a little bit so that that wasn't such an easy win for her in the debate. Well, Leah Ward, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Let's switch over to the UCP side now because it was interesting to watch Danielle Smith's uh, victory speech last night because when she talked about sort of, you know, let's, we're all one now and so on, uh, it was relatively, the applause was somewhat muted. 
But when she decided to focus on, focus on her favorite target um, and say that she'll fight any direct attacks with the federal government on Alberta's oil and gas industry, that got a lot of applause. Have a listen. As Premier, I cannot, under any circumstances, allow these contemplated federal policies to be inflicted upon Albertans. I simply can't, and I won't. I can't, and I won't. Canada, of course, is entering a bit of a make-or-break period when it comes to advancing federal government, the federal government's climate goals. There's two pieces of legislation coming up shortly, and Danielle Smith elaborated on those during a conversation with Chorus's Shea Ganim on Edmonton 6:30 Ched this morning. There's a big fight coming up. We've known for some time that in these next couple of weeks, they intend to, t- to drop two additional uh, pieces of legislation. One, the clean electricity regulations, which would force us to move to a net zero power grid by 2035, as well as a, an emissions cap, which I, which, both of which would be devastating. There she is, uh, Danielle Smith, speaking to Shea Ganim this morning. Uh, in an interview later today, Smith said she does want to reset her relationship with the federal government uh, while readying to invoke the province's sovereignty act over emissions targets if she has to. Now, the federal liberal government, what did they have to say today? Well, you know, they said the re-election of Danielle Smith will not hinder Ottawa's efforts to advance aggressive climate action policies. Here's the prime minister. I want to begin today by congratulating Danielle Smith on her election victory. I look forward to speaking with her later this afternoon and uh, we'll continue to work on growing the economy, on fighting climate change and on supporting Albertans uh, into the future. There you have the Prime Minister. But it does feel like with Daniel Smith uh, back in power as Premier and with a UCP majority that this whole, that these different visions of the future for Canada's energy patch are going to continue. Joining me now with more on that is longtime energy exec, writer and industry expert David Yeager. He was appointed last year as chair of the Premier's Advisory Council on Alberta's energy, energy future. Uh, David, thanks so much. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for calling. Yes, uh, your reaction, I guess, just to the to the victory itself. We, you know, what was it? Uh, what was the mood like to watching the UCP uh, win again last night? Uh, this is uh, well, polling has been a little unpredictable in Canadian elections in recent years, and uh, goodness knows this was heavily polled. Everybody I know was citing at three thirty eight candidate dot com. So right. we got a blow by blow, and uh, but amazingly enough, they were they were they're pretty accurate. I was surprised actually. I was a candidate in 2012 for Wild Rose, and boy, were the polls wrong on that one. And right. So, uh, so I, it was, it was, it was, it was not a surprise. This is, um, there was a lot of uh, foibles associated with uh, with the UCP and, and and Daniel's remarkable comeback. But at the end of the day, the other name on the ballot was the NDP, and and uh, the only time they've ever won was a really peculiar set of circumstances we didn't have this time. So I, I think there was some quiet confidence that. That we were going to pull this off it wasn't going to be huge, but uh, in the end, I don't. Th- I think the people that watched it closely weren't weren't that surprised. And a great relief this morning. I mean, to wake up to. Uh, I work in the oil and gas business. All my friends have. I grew up in it, and to wake up to another NDP government would have been uh, a real, a real, real downer. <laughs> yeah, tell me about that because I mean, at the time, if you weren't in Alberta, and I wasn't, but but you think back to that era when Notley was in power, and you know, sort of world world oil prices kind of everything kind of tanked and so on. But but a lot of people in in your business were really unhappy with her government. Why was that for 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 outsiders to understand? It was a question of piling on. The writing was on the wall that when she was elected in May of 2015, at the 2014 OPEC meeting in late December, the, the Saudi Arabia announced it wasn't going to support the prices 
So there was a, a oil price collapse underway that after many years of, of going doing well. So the oil price was on its way down by the time they were elected in the spring of 2015. And what I call by piling on, <clears throat> the way I describe it is the NDP had never formed power and never formed government, and they had a laundry list of things they felt they had to do. So they started out with the climate leadership plan, plan was with a cap on emissions. They started out with a carbon tax. And they were not—they're uh, not pro oil anyway. All the NDP candidates, there's lots of stock photos of them protesting this pipeline and, and no more oil sands. But the the timing of this radical intervention in how the oil industry is managed at the same time that the industry was going in the dumpster anyway. So that's that's where it was coined piling on. The, the, into the, the climate leadership plan was done in time to go to the Paris 2015 uh, conference uh, in Paris, and, and, and they went arm in arm with Trudeau, and, and the oil sands were under new management, and everybody was so proud that, that Canada had the filthiest oil in the history of humanity under control under the progressive, thoughtful climate concerned government but it just got worse after that like it, that wasn't bad enough and then and then the federal government of course won in, in the fall of 2015 and brought in some uh, some tax issues there was a policy change one of the factors that really affected things that doesn't get enough credit is, is the election of donald trump in 2016 of course he put in some very aggressive uh, tax measures to attract people to the state so the combination right. of all those things it was destined to be bad and the ndp made it worse and by 2018, right. it was obviously from Notley's body language. She was going, what have I done? And here we are now, 2023. There's a war still going on that's affected energy prices. Fracking looks, yeah. the fracking miracle in the U.S. looks like it's coming, well, not to an end, but it's certainly slowing down. And suddenly there's a different kind of gaze being cast on Alberta's energy. And I mean that in the broadest of ways. So you have a government in Ottawa who's still very, very committed to their climate targets. You have a business in Alberta that people want to buy from. So how do you, where do we go from here, do you think? The channel has really changed on the oil sands. I use the rich, uh, rich American private jet to Fort McMurray uh, protest barometer. It's not that <laughs> yes. commonly used, but it was for a long time. It was quite fashionable for James Cameron and Neil Young and Jane Fonda and whoever to fly, charter a plane, go to uh, Fort McMurray, call the place, uh, call a bunch of names, do a photo op, go home, do cheers, pipeline protests and so on. So but I think that people don't really detect how much the – or uh, don't really discern how much the, the wind has changed, if you will, the winds that are back, is all of a sudden people are looking at the oil sands after the events in Russia and the uh, and the spike in oil prices, and they're going, holy cow, these guys, these guys are making a lot of money. I mean, they were predicted never to be profitable, and tough times make uh, – Call for tough measures, and so they made the oil as oil sands was very, very efficient, very, very profitable. All of a sudden, we started making money, and then people looked around when Russia invaded Ukraine and said, "Holy cow, we got 3.7 million barrels of oil, steady as a rock, no decline rates like the Permian Basin, right in the heart of North America. Maybe this is valuable." And so, it's really, it's really back to the energy security supply issue that permeated the energy debate 50 years ago. Everybody's looking at, well, maybe this isn't so bad. The, the only people that really hate the place anymore are uh, our fellow Canadians. <laughs> the people, that, the, 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 great, the greatest persecution of the Canada's oil and gas industry, the greatest determination to make it something else, are no longer coming from the United States or Europe. It's, it's coming from our own country.
It's interesting because, I mean, there's this the line that comes out of Ottawa is that everyone who supports oil and gas in, in Alberta can't see that there's benefits to this. Tra- to we'll, We're not going to use the word just transition because it's a horrible term. But, you know, that to, you know, we see it happening all over the world. And, you know, Norway's doing it sort of trying they're starting on their energy mix right getting ready for the future you know keeping keeping the energy mix going and building towards something new um how do you bridge that gap or do you or is or is this time just to sort of let alberta be alberta let it do it let it let it do it let it do it its own way this is pure canadian politics the only canada is the fifth largest oil and gas hydrocarbon uh, producing jurisdiction in the world period so i think some people are embarrassed about that but they were the only country in the world that's brought in the carbon tax the only one in the world that's uh, blocked pipelines the only country in the world that has blocked export pipelines to sell the world markets it's really we're, we're standalone on our own in our own uh, in our own determination to make our honesty something else uh, the other the other 10 top oil producing countries the top 20 are doing nothing like this norway's drilling whatever they're doing in the electric cars with their hydropower, they're still drilling for more oil. So we're, we, we're unique in that sense. But I, I think of the politics, I was at the C.D. Howe Institute in, uh, last June on behalf of Alberta, and they were doing, a, they were looking at the, at the new emission caps that came out in April 21 for 2030. And they said, what do you think? And you don't want to call it political, but here's some numbers for you. Since and this is part of my speech, since 1986 and after 17 federal elections, Alberta has elected a total of 20 Liberals MPs in the past 54 years. This was, the most was four and 10 times it was zero. And then, of course, in the 2020 election, the Greater Toronto Area elected 52 Liberals in 12 hours. Right. And, and you look at the maps. I mean, it's, you know, the oil, the oil consuming uh, regions of the world, of Canada, the ones with access. And they do have in central Canada, remember, they have hydro and nuclear, which we don't have in Alberta. This is the problem. Is the, the areas uh, that are that are eas- more easily adaptable to the 23, uh, 2035 targets. That BC's got hydro, Manitoba's got hydro, Ontario's got hydro and nuclear, Quebec's got hydro. We don't have any of those things in Alberta or Saskatchewan. So all we got is, um, you know, we got wind, solar and coal and natural gas, period. It's just they're just not meaningful supplies of this. And so so you look at this, and you say, well, the, the, here's these people telling us what we ought to do. And uh, it's, it's impossible. I guess the one aspect of the emission targets that really nobody's talked about is could they even be done? It's not a matter of political will. It's a matter of physics and economics. And that's the one question that we never ask in this political bunch. Like we stepped to the story today. Smith said what you, the clips from last night. Another reporter said Trudeau said this. You did it in your intro like it's a political fight. Nobody's talking about the physics of is yeah. it actually possible for Alberta and Saskatchewan to comply with these policies without shutting in oil or turning the lights off. And no, it's well, not. That- David Yeager is with us this half hour. He is the chair of the Premier's Advisory Council on Alberta's Energy Future. We're talking, he's a longtime energy exec, writer, and industry expert as well, of course. We're talking about uh, the UCP's win last night in Alberta, another majority government, Daniel Smith, as Premier. What impact that will have on energy? Of course, I guess that means that, I know you can't talk about the work because it hasn't been handed over yet, but I guess it means you're going to hand over the work, right? Uh, it's a really interesting group of people you put together uh, to look into this. And a big question, right, because I think it's sometimes... A lot of us just sort of skirt over the details, look at the look at sort of the the collision between different sides, and forget that you know there's an industry here that that has every interest to stay you know to stay prosperous, to to do well, and to move along into the future. I guess that's what you've been looking at, right? Well, the 
entire um, future of energy or the ch- energy transition or the climate debate or decarbonization, it's really long on what and really short on how. And so everybody says what we should do. We should have net zero by 2050. We should, for some reason, in April of 2021, the Paris targets were six years old and the federal government woke up one day and said that our 30% reduction by 2030 is inadequate and they raised it by 50%. Don't know where that came from. They weren't even going to make the 2030, the original Paris targets, and then they raised them by 50%. So everybody knows what uh, what to do. We've got to decarbonize. We've got to decarbonize the supply chain, embrace renewables, low carbon energy. Everybody gets that. The, the energy mm-hmm. executives of Calgary really get that. I mean, the capital markets have taught them that. Everybody would like to do it. The question is how. And mm-hmm. so, the, so this is this goes back to the debate where we left off before the break. The nobody has asked the question. Even could this be done? Can this be done? People say it should be done. The federal government says we're going to pass this legislation that it will be done. But if you say, how are you going to do it? And that was the point I made uh, with, with the City Howe Institute. At that time, there was eight years. Now there's only seven. And you look at the history of building major projects. The example I used was the Ring of Fire, uh, which is that giant, uh, that uh, big mineral deposit in northern Ontario, where they have mm-hmm. 20 years and they haven't even got an access road yet. And so what can you do? You know, how are you going to do this? And so so the federal government comes out with these announcements and these targets. And, 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 and Scott Moe and, and, and Saskatchewan did the same thing with electricity. So your coal must be gone by X. And he said, well, it can't be done by X. And they're, they're, they're sort of deaf to this. It's the same thing with carbon capture, utilization, and storage. It's an enormous project, $16 billion in funding. It's a brand new – it's like a reverse oil field. Can it be done? The, the dem- one of the best demonstrations for the world of how to do this was done in Canada. It was done in Alberta by Shell at, um, at Scotland years ago. We, we, we know how to do this. <clears throat> it can be done. It will be done. But the physics of, of, of putting together the other part of the, 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 that's not really well understood is how much the industry's capacity to design and execute major projects has been has been weakened by the downturn, like to survive the period from the oil price collapse in 2014 to when things started to improve seven years later with all the policies and pipeline blockades and capital shortages and divestment movements and ESG investing. I mean, this was a this was a full on full on world assault on Alberta and the oil sands for many years. And so what you do to stay in business during that period, and then of course oil went to negative in 2020 because of COVID, is you let all your long-term planning people go. You're, you're your project engineers, your right. long-term planning, the, 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 the knowledge, the, capa- the physical capability of the engineering and logistical and supply talent to actually build things was huge at one time and it was all let go. And then everybody woke up and said, well, it's time to get to put the band back together and start building things. With who? You know, with what? And then, of course, another collateral damage. I'm sorry. I mean, it's my favorite subject. But we're not turning out any engineers out of university because all the young people have been taught there's no future in this business, right? So, Well, Kenoko Phillips would disagree. Kenoko Phillips came in this week, right? They're investing. I mean, what's interesting about what's happening is I think we're watching the – I think we're – as we're arguing about it, I think we're watching companies sort of do their thing because there's a worldwide movement to try to – have a transition to try to get it to get cleaner and greener at the same time everyone understands there's still demand for what canada produces right and how do you find that balance the two countries yeah yeah, the the two countries that have pivoted the least 
to the new realities of energy. Every All of Europe has changed direction. Japan has changed direction. They came over here trying to buy LNG. Everybody's boycotting Russia. The whole world oil markets have changed direction. You know, there's the Eastern Bloc now. The two countries that are stubborn, stubbornly sticking to the pre-COVID playbook are Canada and the United States. And what do they have in common? I mean, the Biden administration is on its plan. The Trudeau administration what what on its plan. What do the two countries have in common? The cheapest energy in the world. We're doing this because we're the only countries in the world that can afford to keep doing it. Everybody else is looking at the reality of the rising cost of energy, the geopolitical issues, security of supply, the un, un, unstable reliability of wind and solar, and they're doing what they have to, they're firing up coal, coal fire generating plants, they're doing what they have to keep the lights on. The two countries that have the luxury of continuing on the pre-COVID playbook of the energy transition and decarbonization are the two countries that are they are simply the largest producers and the most blessed with energy resources are the only two countries in the world. That, I believe, is the main reason we're late to the party. The individual countries, companies sorry, are finding that it's, it's okay to be in the oil business again and you're not being persecuted or being called a climate criminal for being a board member. And like, so Conical Phillips saw, you know, a nice piece of uh, real estate in the oil sands. They all take it. And I think you're going to see more of that. Well, David Yeager, will you, we'll leave it there. I know this is going to be talked about much over the next little while. Look forward to seeing your report, by the way. And uh, thank you for your time. No, it's my favorite subject. Thanks for the call. Have a great day. Let's go to Nova Scotia now, because I, I imagine you may have seen pictures over the last few days of those incredible and very, very damaging, devastating fires that are there, including that one in a subdivision uh, called Tantalon, which is about 30 kilometers outside of uh, of Halifax, I believe, or about a half an hour drive. Uh, some 200 homes and buildings have been damaged or destroyed already since it broke out on Sunday. 16,000 people remain evacuated from the suburban community. It's a, in a wooded area. Uh, and it's been a really trying day for residents of those subdivisions northwest, again, of Halifax, um, where all of those homes were destroyed. The Mounties uh, took Donny Osborne into view the smoldering remains of his home in the subdivision of Yankee Town this morning. He says most of his home, neighbors' homes also burned to the ground. There's one house standing, there's one garage standing on a different property, and uh, the rest of the houses are gone, totally destroyed. It, it, and, and these fires have been moving so quickly, and, and Nova Scotia is not really a place known for its really devastating wildfires. It's uh, not not normally. Officials, of course, there are still warning there's a risk of the fire doubling back and burning areas that have escaped damage. Uh, and again, all those residents still remain evacuated. They have to. Deputy Fire Chief David Muldrum uh, says that's based on what first responders are seeing and that a full damage assessment has not been confirmed yet. We understand how terribly upsetting it is for people who are outside of this area and don't know what's happened to their properties and don't know when they come back. And we will work as quickly as we can. We cannot say right now when we'll be able to notify residents and further when we'll be able to bring residents back and reoccupy this area. And we ask for patience and understanding as we do our best. Yeah, and it all happened so quickly on Sunday too. Dave Steves of the province's Natural Resources and Renewables Department says he's hopeful for any precipitation to, but the extended forecast is calling for hot, windy weather tomorrow and Thursday and no rain until Friday night at the earliest. Here's what he had to say. I am praying for any type of precipitation at this point, uh, and I know everybody up here shares in that thought. Uh, we'll take whatever we can get, but to truly make uh, a real dent in, in what we're dealing with here, it's going to take an extended amount of rain over uh, a good period of time.
Well, joining me now is Nova Scotia's Premier, Tim Houston. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Just so listeners are aware, I mean, the situation's been pretty fluid today. I know the weather wasn't cooperating much, but um, what's happening on the ground today? Yeah, the weather the weather is not cooperating. So across the province, I mean, the province is, is really, really on edge for sure. Three out of control fires. Two of them, two of them actually grew grew today. Uh, one stayed within its its footprint that it was in. But so look, it's it's you know thousands of people, almost twenty thousand people evacuated. And the, the nature of our province is if you're not if you're not one of them, you probably know one of them. So it's high level of stress across the province, but. We have expert firefighters, and they're focused on you know protecting people, and that's the number one priority right now. You issued um, some pretty serious warnings today to the folks in Nova Scotia. I think this is a reminder we've seen in Alberta of late, in BC too, which is don't make this worse, right? If you're out there, keep in mind everyone is stretched thin trying to fight this, and please don't make this worse. What kind of um, rules are in place to try to make sure that there are no more fires? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our, our resources are stretched thin. We have, the first responders are amazing. You know, our natural resource firefighting teams, our volunteer firefighters, our, you know, RCMP, everyone's, everyone's kind of stepping up here and, and helping out, but they're stretched incredibly thin. Uh, so we're supplementing that with, you know, we've got support from Newfoundland, sent some airplanes, water bombers, uh, New, New Brunswick had, had pitched in with one as well. PEI is sending firefighters. Others are, you know, Ontario sent hose. I'm hearing from lots of premiers just how they can step up, but but there's a couple of ways that Nova Scotians can actually step up, and we want to make sure they do that. So we we put in place a province-wide burn ban, no burning in in this province. We just want to make sure people are respectful of that. Don't flick your cigarette out the window, no burning. So that's one. And the second thing is really restricting movement in our forests. So just making sure that we we don't cause any situation in inadvertent you know uh, by accident whatever the case may be you know we can't have another fire in this province our resources are stretched thin so so those are a couple things we're asking nova scotians to do and we're doing that with, with policy don't burn and stay out of the woods where you, where you can tell me a bit about the tantalum one because that's the one we've seen across the country that one looks like it just just raged very quickly and caught a lot of people off guard and and has done some real damage i think i think you've been to see some of the damage in some of the areas what did you witness yeah so we were able to last night you know where where it was safe we were able to see some of it and it's pretty devastating for sure that fire moved incredibly quick i understand that from the time the first call came in uh, within an hour, there was pretty significant response, uh, over 100 firefighters, I think. But at that time, the fire was out of control. So some of these evacuations just gut wrenching. Literally, you know, conservation officers, RCMP members showing up at a doorstep and saying, you got five minutes, you got to get out of here. So just just devastating. And 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 the, the HRM released a statistic that the Halifax Regional Municipality, that the upwards of 200 structures lost or damaged. And and I can tell you that the devastation through their uh, emotional pain and, and financial pain that people will, will feel from this for, for a long time. But that fire raged very quickly. And the one in Shelburne is is a massive fire. It's burning very hot and it's moving quickly too. Structure damage there is is for sure. We just don't have the inventory of it. So um, it's a tough time. We, we, won't, we can't sugarcoat it. It's a tough time. And these evacuations will last a little while longer. That's for sure. But I just want people to know that, you know, that the, the province is, is, is stepping up. The, the firefighters are doing the very best they can. Municipalities and the federal government reaching out to we'll we'll put whatever we can do uh, in terms of resources at this and we'll get these fires under control and then we'll, we'll go forward. 
I guess part of the issue here too is a lot of people who've been evacuated just don't know what's happened to their properties, to their homes, to everything they've owned, right? They, they haven't been able to go back and see. The uncertainty is really wearing, wearing on people, especially as the days go on. It's been a couple of days now. They really want to know. They want to know when they can go back. And that's a difficult question to answer right now. And they, But they're really concerned about what it is they're going back to. It's having a big toll on people. So there is, you know, the first priority is, is control the fires, get them under, under control, protect property, protect lives, and keep our firefighters safe. That's the first priority. And now, you know, we're where we can. We're trying to get to the, you know, to get, in, get some eyes in there and get an inventory, let people know what they can expect. So it's, um, it's, it's the emotions are strong. I've been, you know, in these comfort centers and we, I've had a lot of conversations with, with Nova Scotians where there's, you know, tears on, on both sides. I feel that emotion, Nova Scotians feel it and it's a stressful time. Yeah. And just in terms of the, the efforts to try to contain these fires that you were mentioning earlier that other provinces have been helping out, I understand that even you had some crews that were out helping other territory helping the northwest territories i think and they've had to come back so there's been you know this idea of helping each other out in these situations is is great but it's been a really fiery spring and everything is stretched thin when we have resources and we can help somebody else we we do that too we're quick to do that uh, that's the way that 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 arrangement works it just happens there right now we're on the needs on the need side of that equation and we did have uh, we did have a crew 20 20 firefighters were were um, in the Northwest Territories, I believe they're they're on their their way home. They want to be home here to help out too. But across the country, Canadians step up to help each other out. We do that where we can, and and where we are very very thankful that we're on the on the receiving end of that support that it comes through for us. You've been reaching out to the U.S. I gather as well to uh, states that aren't too far from you to see if they can't help out as well. Yeah, through through New England, I know Minister Rushton is is active on, on this file and having those discussions to see what uh, what can be allocated to come and particularly around the air we have a number of helicopters a number you know m- m- bombers in the air but the air support is what's really needed so but you're right i mean it's it's um we look across the country you've seen these fires and and people know that uh, it's been a dry spring and right right now in, in nova scotia we're you know we're, we're in a situation where we have the wind is really pushing these fires and and we go back to the to the prevention angle of it. We've had, I think it's up to almost 190 forest fires now at, at this point in our province just this oh. season. That's an incredible number. It's a shocking number to Nova Scotians. Uh, and, and the reason most, most people, these happen a lot and people just don't know because the firefighters are so quick and so professional. They get in, they extinguish it. But but the thing about it is, is that every single one of those fires this year in this province, we haven't had lightning. We haven't had weather that would be driving these fires. So that means that in some way, shape or form, a human uh, was responsible for starting these fires. And that's why the burn ban, that's why the, the limiting movement in the woods, because we just have to really be mindful here. Nova Scotia Premier Tim Houston is with us this half hour. We're talking about wildfires, of course, that have done some real devastation not too far outside of Halifax, uh, specifically in one big subdivision there. Uh, and it comes, you know, with memories of Fiona still very much in mind. Uh, Tim, this whole idea, Premier Houston, this whole idea of, of sort of climate climate related catastrophes. I mean, I, there was a report, I think, that came out late last year in your province sort of talked about flooding being a big concern in the 2030s, wildfires in the 2050s. It seems like it's all landed on you in 2022, 2023. 
Well, there's certainly a lot, a lot going on. Fiona, the Fiona situation was caused a lot of damage in this province and a, a lot of devastation. And, and in many ways, the coming out from underneath that is still happening. There's still a lot of homes that, you know, still looking for roof, somebody to do roof repairs. Definitely through the forest, a lot of downfall, a lot of trees laying on the ground. That's a concern now as we go through this forest fire season. But yeah, we're, we're a coastal province. So, you know, that's kind of in our nature to be environmentalists in that respect. So, all of these things, we're, we're, we're watching all these things all the time, but, but certainly right now, Mother Nature's delivered her, uh, she's, she's taken her toll on Nova Scotia, let's say. Just in terms of, of what that means for individuals who are struck by this, because we know that when it comes to insurance and so on, Fiona delivered a few surprises. When it comes to these, I imagine there may be some surprises as well. How does the province help those folks out? Yeah, as a province, I mean, after after Fiona, I think as a, as a government, we were quick to kind of do do what we could we came out really quick with a program for you know people without power for a couple of weeks in many cases so food spoilage you know trying to you know come up a program to try to support community centers to get generators so we can have more warming stations we, we came out with what we could and, and now we announced this week an initial 500 dollars for people who are evacuated we know that there'll be financial pressure there and this would be to ease the immediate burden of food having to buy food lodging these types of things and it's something to get them started so we'll, we'll do that but but you're right I, I think with the fires you know um, i'm particularly concerned about you know many people would have in, insurance on their uh, for fire on their on their property, concerned about whether they're they're not underinsured, that they mm-hmm. have appropriate insurance for replacement. So these are all things that'll be very kind of individual situations, but uh, you know collectively will will weigh on on the province in in, in many ways. So uh, as a as a premier, as an elected official, just as a as a community person, we always want to do everything we can. We always want to do more. I always want to do more for for Nova Scotians, and and sometimes you can't do it all. But you do what you can. And as a province, uh, as a provincial government, we'll, we'll do what we can to support people through this process. Uh, we'll do that knowing that we wish we could do a little bit more. As always, in your situation, you must have seen already firsthand what kind of work's being done on the front lines by those trying to fight these fires. It seems from afar, we've been talking a lot about Alberta of late. It seems like a very tricky proposition for those on the front lines. Oh, yeah. You just can't say enough. They're true saints for sure. Fighting a forest fire is like that's grueling work. And so, you know, when I'm when I'm at the command center or at the, some of the, the conference centers or at the fire departments and you see these crews come in and, you know, they're, they're tired and they're covered in soot and they're, they're sweaty because it's hot and it's, you know, you're lugging around through the forest. These are trying, trying conditions. And, and what, what, what I see every time is I see them come in and they try to get a bite to eat and, and, you know, just kind of catch their breath a little bit. Then they want to go right back out there. Uh, they just want to go right back out there and, and help do what they can. So we really can't say enough about them. And they carry it very personally. They take, you know, they really want to um, support Nova Scotians. So I don't know where we would be without our, our first responders and our, our volunteer firefighters across the province. And for the time being, I mean, thankfully, no loss of life, right? So did property can be rebuilt. It's going to be tough. But uh, for the time being, at least everyone's made it out safe. Yeah, that's a that's the common thing. Like as I speak to people who have been displaced, and it, it comes back to kind of two things. One, look, people will say, "Look, we're safe. We're all together, and we're safe." You know, I have my family with me, and we're safe, and we're thankful for that. They're thankful for the support from the community, so you know that they can go to a comfort center and be safe. You know, have access to food, have access to the things they need, but but more so that you're safe. And thank goodness to this point, no, no reported missing persons, no reported death or serious injury. 
that's pretty remarkable. That's that's a real testament to, to, to Nova Scotians, the way that the evacuations happened and, and the testament to people just uh, responding and respecting the evacuations. Well, Premier Houston, uh, I hope Mother Nature cooperates with you on this one. Uh, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This was an extreme event. Quote, this was an extreme event and unseen before for many. That was a quote from one of the firefighters tackling those major wildfires near Halifax yesterday. Um, Now, that's an area that's not known for fast-moving and intense wildfires. It seemingly came out of nowhere, but experts say factors include a string of dry days, gusty winds, debris from post-tropical storm Fiona that still litters the province, set the stage for this disaster. Here's John Clegg. People living in those suburbs could never imagine something like this would happen. They could never think that actually the forests would dry out to the point where, you know, a fire could start and then spread so rapidly. Never imagine. Those are words we're hearing a lot these days when it comes to these massive fires, whether it's about the scope and intensity of the flames we've been seeing in Alberta in May alone, where more than 1 million hectares of land are now estimated to have burned in a record-breaking spring. I mean, it's only the end of May uh, for wildfires there. To put that into perspective, 2023 is already the second worst wildfire season in the province's history on record. Uh, The previous record was set back in 1981 when 1.3 million hectares burned. Uh, We spoke to freelance journalist and former wildland firefighter Kyle Britton a few weeks ago, right after he returned from one fire zone in Alberta. Here's how he describes it. Okay, things are getting pretty intense out here. I wanted to share what this is like in real time. You can see that very ominous black smoke, that column of smoke just rising very quickly. Once that fire sort of started to blow up, it evacuated all the low-level smoke around here. Uh, All the smoke just kind of got sucked up into this fire. I've got ashes raining down out of the sky as well onto me. Uh, Just very intense. You can see it burning over there on the horizon. Just a very strong wildfire here in northwestern Alberta, uh, moving slowly toward my location. That was Kyle Britton a few weeks ago reporting from one of those areas. I mean, the way he described it, the flames were, you know, 20 and 30 feet high is how he was describing it at the time. Um, And we could reach back. We don't have to talk about this year. We could talk about Lytton. We all remember what happened there with a wildfire that just tore through that place, essentially leaving nothing but ash and foundations. Um, right after the heat dome, right? Or Fort McMurray, of course, back in 2016, another devastating one. Just a few examples on this side of the border. You could think about the images you've seen from California of later, Portugal or Australia, you name it, the list goes on and on. Raging fires, fire tornadoes, entire communities reduced to ash in the blink of an eye. Well, part of that is the basis of a new book by journalist and author John Viatt. His latest book is called Fire Weather, The Making of a Beast or A True Story from the Hotter World. I think it depends where you buy it. And John, joins me now. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Hey, hello. Good evening. So you've written about tigers and trees, and now you've taken on fire. Um, tell me what, what the inspiration was for, for this one at this time. Well, I, I think I was as shocked as everyone uh, when images of Fort McMurray, you know, a city of you know nearly 90,000 people disappeared under a gigantic fire cloud. And if you recall, you know, in those early days in May 2016, it disappeared from view for for days. We didn't know what was going on under there. Lots of people evacuated, you know, in a panic, really, an orderly panic, you could say. But nobody knew if anyone was left behind. No one knew if the city would survive. And that was really frightening, uh, certainly for the people uh, 
in town, but also for the rest of us watching that this could happen in Canada and to such a really a wealthy and successful, uh, well-built city. And so that really got me thinking, and journalists piled onto that story, as they should. It was absolutely newsworthy, and I started thinking about it. I was far away at the time, and as I looked more closely and I saw that the local lakes were still frozen, that there had been frost uh, in the forest and in town just a few days earlier, that there were car-sized blocks of ice along the Athabasca River, and I thought, wow, if a fire can burn with that intensity— and we're talking, you know, a pyrocumulonimbus cloud, 45,000 feet high, temperatures well over, you know, like 900 Celsius or so. Uh, my Celsius Fahrenheit is a bit shaky, uh, but <laughs> metal meltingly hot. If it could do yeah. that in northern Alberta, imagine what it could do farther south in a warmer place uh, with old wooden houses like Vancouver or cottage country or Nova Scotia. And it got me thinking about fire and the hazard it poses in this modern world with a CO2 enriched atmosphere due to um, fossil fuel burning. And through that, you you weave a tale. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's it, the timing right now, of course, it feels like we would wait to speak to you at a time when it made sense. And now it seems like every week it makes sense to speak to you it, about this because we've had, we've had the fires in Alberta. Now tonight we've been talking about those incredible wildfires in Halifax that burnt down a subdivision. I thought of you, of course, because that's one of the things you really touch on is this encroachment of houses into forests and what happens when they go up. Yeah, it's, you know, I think for a lot of us, and certainly for people in Nova Scotia, it's really a novelty and a, and a hideous shock. Uh, if, but for people who've been studying fire, who've been studying climate change, who've been studying the buildup of CO2 in our atmosphere for decades now, They've seen it coming, and we've seen it in California. We've seen it in Australia. Okanagan Park fire in 2003 in B.C., that was a bellwether. You know, 250 structures were lost. Then 2011 with Slave Lake, 500 structures lost. So there's been this steady progression uh, if you're watching it. And that's what, I, you know, after Fort McMurray, I thought, I better look at this. And then I, could, I started to see the trend and I thought, well, it's not stopping. You know, the CO2 is still building. The temperature is still rising around the world. And when you dry, you know, think about your own laundry. You know, you hang it out on a sunny day, it dries quicker. A forest is really no different. You put it out on a hot, sunny day, it's going to dry out faster. You add some wind in there, it's going to dry really fast. And for McMurray burned, the, the temperature was 15 Celsius higher than normal. The humidity was around 10 or 11 percent. That's as dry as Death Valley. And you add some wind to that, and that's like gasoline for a fire, that combination of uh, heat, uh, aridity, dryness, and wind. You know, it's absolutely explosive. And that's unfortunately what Nova Scotia is experiencing right now. Right. And we saw it earlier this year in Alberta again. I mean, it was a reminder that yeah. these fires all started in early May, right? We forget sometimes yeah. that early May is fire season because it still feels like it's, but dry winter, dry spring, uh, you know, the foliage is dry, everything's ready to go, right? And here we have it again. You talked about in the book a lot about the boreal forest system, and what's happened to it and why we're seeing the intensity and scope of these fires where we're seeing them. Well, I mean, the boil is designed to burn. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a phoenix among ecosystems uh, in that there are tree species like black spruce that will not germinate unless their cones get hotter than the sun can heat them up to. So they, they have to burn to open the, open the seeds. 
open the cones. And so that's part of the cycle. But having the, the temperature is 15 degrees hotter, having the humidity that much lower, it, it tweaks everything. And so what would be a, you know, a normal intense fire becomes you know, a raging you know, inferno that is releasing kilotons of energy. You know, it's really like a nuclear bomb. And so that's what I think is hard for most people to wrap their heads around is these small changes tip us over these, you know, take us over these new thresholds. And I think one way to think about it is think about your own body. You know, we're, you're 37 Celsius or so. That's already pretty warm. That feels perfectly normal. But if you went up to 39, you'd be in bed. If you went to 41 Celsius, you'd be in the hospital. 42 Celsius, you'd probably be dead. So natural systems are all heat dependent, whether they're in the ocean, whether they're in the forest. And so if you crank a forest up to 33 Celsius, as it was in Fort McMurray, and drop the humidity down to 11 percent, as it was on that day, May 3rd, 2016, you're getting you're going to have a different experience. You're going to have a different outcome. And that's what we really need to wrap our heads around is we are in a on a warming planet now. And with the warmth comes more evaporation and more rapid drying out. And so what would normally be dry becomes desiccated. And those little changes um, create real impacts. And we're really seeing it now in terms of fire. It's really, really frightening uh, what's the energy being released. John Viad is with us this half hour. His latest book is called Fire Weather. It's really a story about Fort McMurray and those devastating wildfires uh, back in 2016, but it encapsulates so much more. It's sort of the setting off point, and the book is woven around this, but tells the story of how we got here, why fires become so much more um, well, it, it, I feel like it's become so much more intense when you watch them. If it's not, if it's not California, then it's Alberta or if it's Nova Scotia. Now you see these fire incidents that feel like they've never happened before. Uh, John, you bring this up because I think, you know, it, it's a bit like the frog in the boiling pot of water, right? It's happening around us, but but we've struggled to figure out what exactly is going on, even in the face yeah. of science. Yes, it's, it's uh, I mean, it's, it's climate change, you know, and it's the, the buildup of CO2 and methane in the atmosphere over the past hundred years or so of fossil fuel burning. It's cumulative. And, you know, I think it's, it, we get, you know, in our own little bubble and our own little world, and we really focus on that. And one of the one of the only benefits I can see to the fire the fire smoke that so many of us are experiencing now. I, I was speaking to friends down in Colorado, and they've got Alberta smoke uh, in their in their city. And what it shows us is that our atmosphere has no boundaries, no borders. We really are all connected. And where the smoke goes, the CO2 goes, too. And same with the methane. And it all stays in there. We're really in a big bubble together. And it's, we've been filling it up with uh, CO2 and methane. So it's been changing the climate. And, clo- and we are seeing these indicators of, of rising temperature and more explosive fire. And so places that have always burned, California, for example, Australia, the boreal forest, are now burning in these new ways. And there's some big fires that have happened in Nova Scotia, too, over time. But this current uh, big one in Nova Scotia is now the biggest in the history of the province. And so we're crossing these thresholds, as you just uh, suggested. And it's hard for us to uh, wrap our heads around because we are 
used to the to the world that we were raised in and and those become our standards and you mentioned the lucretius problem uh mm-hmm. for the before the break and that is lucretius was a poet and philosopher from uh ancient roman times and he was talking about how there was this tendency in people to think the biggest mountain in the world was the biggest mountain that they themselves had seen and so we base our notion of what extreme is on what we generally live with and so you know, my notion of a deep snow in Vancouver might be a foot or two, but a deep snow in Newfoundland or in Colorado might be very different. And so that um, we're limited by our own experience, our own perceptions. And so when, say, a climate scientist comes up and says, you know, you can expect worse flooding, you can expect bigger fires, you might say, well, I know what a big fire is. I remember that one back in 79 or, you know, or whatever it was. But actually, we are seeing things that no human has seen before, at least in their particular community. And so, for example, in Redding, California in 2018, there was a fire tornado. So an EF3 tornado that tore houses off their foundations, that tore down 100-foot-tall high-tension pylons and burned everything. And the gas temperatures in that fire were the melting uh, point of steel. No one's ever seen that. That is new on Earth in the human experience. And that is thanks to climate change. And and these changes are happening happening now very rapidly. And so we're having these experiences in California and Alberta and D.C. that feel really novel and shocking. And in Nova Scotia, it's, you know, unheard of. And yet, if firefighters in Nova Scotia watch what's happening in Alberta, watch what's happening in California, and then think about how smoke moves, think about our atmosphere, how we are all connected. We are not insulated from anything, really. So a lot more things are possible now. You know, this notion of regional weather is, is getting turned on its head. And, you know, that is really the promise of climate change, is that you're going to see things that are really hard for you to imagine, but it's incumbent upon us, on, upon our leaders, uh, to really try to imagine into the future, to try to imagine these unimaginable scenarios, because clearly they are coming. They're happening. And unfortunately, no, uh, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia are, are getting their turn right now, and it's really, really hard to watch. And it's it much harder to live through. I thought of your book reading, I think, over the weekend that State Farm has decided to stop insuring homes, new homes in California because of fire risk. And you think, well, think the, rubber's hit the, the rubber's hit the road now, hasn't it? Yeah, it really has. And this is, there's, a, a, there's a concept called uh, cascade effects. And, and that is, you know, you, um, one example is uh, when you have a um, case of global warming, uh, when sea ice in the Arctic stops. Uh, building up in the normal way. Polar bears can't go out onto the ice to hunt seals. What do they do? They go and raid seabird colonies. They go into communities and raid town dumps. They start looking for other sources of protein. Another example of a cascade effect is when, when the permafrost begins to melt, the pipelines that are built across the permafrost in the Arctic begin to sag and rupture. The rail lines out to Churchill, Manitoba, are compromised now because the permafrost is melting under them. And so we, there are these cascade effects all over the world uh, that start happening when you have these systemic breakdowns, when, when these norms are violated. 
And so that's what um, we keep getting introduced to. And they're always a shock to us because we're used to this more stable system. And this, the system is no longer stable. Well, John, thank you so much for your time tonight. The book is called Fire Weather. I guess the making of a beast is a Canadian version of the true story from a hotter world. Is, the, is another one or is it the same? It's the same. It's yeah, no, it's uh, making of a uh, the, the making of a beast is the subtitle for Canada, you know, really right. in honor of, of Fort McMurray and the nickname that terrible fire was given. And then a true story from a hotter world is the, uh, the British and the American subtitle. Right. Uh, well, but, congratulations. You know, I really, yeah. Sorry, go thank ahead. you for your interest and uh, thanks for uh, having me on. We've been talking about 24 Sussex Drive. I don't know if you've ever been. I mean, when I was growing up, you take that, you know, your school trip to Ottawa and you see the Parliament buildings and then you see the Governor General's residence at Rideau Hall and the big land that that's on. And then you see 24 Sussex or you see 24 Sussex first, I guess, on the left. And then the Governor General's is on the right. It's a nice spot. You know, it's not incredible. It's not like the White House. Uh, it's certainly, you have a better view of it than you would have of uh of 10 Downing Street, but it's, you know, it doesn't have quite the majesty of the White House, of course, but it's pretty nice. And it has been the prime minister's residence since 1951. Lots of things have happened there. The current prime minister was, was living there, I guess, when he was born, wasn't he? Um, so he's, he spent a lot of time there, but it seems like he doesn't want to spend any more time there at all because he's never lived there. Um, they moved into a cottage on the governor general's property when he was elected. And meanwhile, 24 Sussex has just started sort of started to fall apart. Um, now, there's been some construction work starting on it, um, basically because it's in such a state of de- deep disrepair, but they're just it's just minor stuff. It's not the big renovation that's needed. Here, have a listen. Have a listen. Helena Jazik was pressed by opposition MPs on a House committee today on when her government intends to make a decision about the official residence of the Prime Minister. Justin Trudeau and his family have not taken up residence in the mansion, which was closed to staff last fall due to its worsening condition, including a rodent infestation. The National Capital Commission, controller of the property, says contractors recently began removing aged electrical systems and asbestos. Jazik says the government expects the commission to provide a detailed list of options for the property's future and says she anticipates having a plan by the fall. Emily Jovesky, the Canadian Press. So a plan by the fall, says the Public Services and Procurement Minister. I mean, the the last report I saw from 2021 said it was in critical condition and needed about $36 million in deferred maintenance. And then the replacement value at about $40.1 million. It's a 34-room mansion. Um, I mean, the property is great. The house itself, I mean, I like it. I like it. I I don't think they should tear it down. But every listeners have made really good points tonight. Steve says, 24 Sussex, Sussex Drive, that slanty shanty is likely full of hazardous materials and should be knocked down. Build a state-of-the-art mansion highlighting Canadian technology, added wind, solar, geothermal systems, and harvest rainwater for toilet flushing and landscape use, allow multiple EVs to be <laughs> to be charged. Yeah, that sounds like something that, he, that, that, that the Prime Minister could sell, couldn't it? I mean, that sounds like his kind of place. I don't know if he's ever going to get to live there, though, because it might be the next Prime Minister who actually gets to live there first. Uh, another listener says, just call a luxury home builder for a rough, rough estimate per square foot of construction of a luxury home. You'll find your estimates from about $500 to $1,000 a foot. We could build Justin Trudeau's 8,000 square foot mansion for a maximum $8 million. Anything above that is feather bedding 
and pure waste call any home builder. I wonder how it works in Ottawa, though, on, on government property. I get a feeling there might be a procurement process there that might drive up the cost of everything. Anyway, we wanted to check in on what should be done with it. Uh, David Fleming is chair of the Heritage Ottawa Advocacy Committee. They, of course, support Heritage in Ottawa, so his take is is, uh, is going to be pretty, pretty obvious, but I kind of agree with it. Uh, Dave, thanks so much for your time tonight. You're welcome. Well, you know, the, the, the saga of 24 Sussex has been going on for quite some time now, but just an update. I gather there's some work going on, but it has nothing to do with, with renovating the place. It's just basic upkeep. Well, what they're trying to do now is to prevent the degradation from advancing. Uh, the building has been allowed to fall into disrepair. We've called it heritage demolition by neglect. Right. And this, this is something that happens in cities that have older buildings. But it's usually something that's done by a private developer or private property owner, not by the government of Canada. So that's been a bit distressing that this has gone on so long. So what they're doing now is, I guess, just making the place safe and secure. So uh, any other work that would be done to turn it into a prime minister's residence or whatever can be done uh, before the place collapses. Right, because all we read is news about just how dire the situation is with rodent infestations and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it just goes from bad to worse, it seems. So in this time that uh, that since it's been vacated, essentially, because the current prime minister has never lived there, the last to do so was Stephen Harper. It's just been kind of left to rot. Well, who's supposed to make a decision? It's it's the government, right? Well, it is the government. I mean, you know, having a home for your prime minister is the cost of doing business as a nation. We certainly have the expertise to restore and do heritage conservation on buildings like this. I mean, they're doing a great job on center block and they've done the east and west wing of parliament building. They've done uh, the old train station, which is now the Senate of Canada. We have some really skilled people, architects and conservationists in the federal government that, that could easily work on this building. The NCC has been pointing out National Capital Commission, right. who are in charge of the official residences, have been pointing this out for years that something has to be done. But it's become a political football and... Uh, if there's no political decision made to make budget money appear, then uh, the NCC or Public Works can't really do anything on their own. Right. Out of sight, out of mind. Ironically, Stornoway, where the leader of the official opposition lives, has actually been renovated recently. I mean, it's been yeah. it's had some upkeep as well. So it's it's a it is a really weird political one. What is it about? Now, I understand, of course, you know, the White House serves as both a residence and as sort of the as an you know bureaucratic hub. Same with 10 Downing Street in London. You know, 24 Sussex has never really been that as well. It's you know, there's the PMO's office closer to Parliament. And yet still this idea that Canada, you know, a G7 nation, has its official uh, leader's residence falling apart seems almost unconscionable. I mean, it seems so uniquely Canadian in some way. Well, I I think it just shows uh, the mindset. The prime minister said, oh, right, he's not going to live there anymore. Well, that's his decision. But, you know, it's not his house. I mean, it belongs to the people of Canada. He was born there. Uh, He was born there. Maybe that's why he doesn't want to live there. I don't know. It's a question of deciding what to do. We wrote to the prime minister in uh, 2019, and we pointed out at the time that, you know, it was deteriorating to the point that it was endangered. 
and that uh, some decision had to be made. And if he didn't want to make a decision or the cabinet didn't want to make a decision, what they do is set up a nonpartisan committee to look at it and uh, made up of politicians, heritage preservationists, architects, you know, to to look at options for the building, whether, you know, you wanted to uh, add a, a facility there for a prime minister's office and or a residence uh, that could be done. Uh, ironically, we suggested in our letter that a good person to chair this committee would be the former governor general, uh, David Johnson. But right. Yeah, he's, I, I, he's, I suspect he's got he probably, other things on his mind now. He I does. Guess. I suspect he probably wishes he had taken your suggestion instead of the one but, he wound up with. But that's politics. That's, that's an aside. Right. Yeah. Uh, he would have been a good choice, actually. I mean, he knows the area. Well, that's what we thought. Yeah. You know, we thought it's it's somebody who's above the politics, and that uh, the government does have a an advisory committee on official residences, and they have you know top notch people sitting on this committee, and I'm sure that they've been telling the government the same thing. Look, you've got to do something about this. And, you know, I think what they have to determine, first of all, if it's going to be a prime minister's residence, if it's going to be a prime minister's residence and or a chancellery or a PMO, and then decide, okay, is this a good site for it? You know, it's a beautiful site overlooking the Ottawa River. It's right on the ceremonial route of uh, Sussex Drive. But all you have to do is look down the street a bit to the British High Commission. The British High Commissioner lives in Ernstcliff. Yep. Ernstcliff was the former home of Sir John A. Macdonald. It's a National Historic Site. And what they've done recently is built a small chancellery office on the property. It doesn't detract at all from the Heritage Building. They had a, a huge building on Elgin Street and they decided they didn't need a lot of office space anymore. Right. So they went through the proper approvals with the Heritage Committee, uh, city planning, and uh, and they built quite a tasteful uh, addition to the property, which, as I said, doesn't really detract from the, the Heritage Building itself. No. That property is, I don't think, any bigger than uh, 24 Sussex. There's a... <laughs> A good example of what could be done, but it's a question of deciding what options are open to them. Yeah. If they don't, if they decide not to use it as a prime minister's office, I think, you know, our feeling is that it should be kept in the public domain. They should find another use for it. A few years ago, we were going to have a national portrait gallery in the former American embassy on Wellington Street, and that never came to pass. So, you know, Maybe we could find a home for the portrait gallery. Yeah. David Fleming is chair of the Heritage Ottawa Advocacy Committee. We're talking about the future of 24 Sussex Drive. The traditional prime minister's residence, at least since 1951, has fallen into a real state of disrepair. And uh, if we let it go any further, it's not going to be salvageable, to be honest. They're doing some upkeep on it right now. Uh, David, how much money are we talking here? Because I keep looking and seeing, you know, figures around the 35, 40 million dollars to really overhaul the whole thing. It might be worth it just to sort of tear it down and build again. But you point out that A, it's a heritage building and B, it's not the prime minister's. It belongs to us. It's all of ours. Yeah, 30 to 40 million has been bandied about. 30 million to uh, restore it for use by the prime minister or by someone else and uh 40 million dollars to build a new a new structure you know our feeling is 
you know, in, in looking at heritage preservation and looking at, you know, having LEEDs compliant buildings that are environmentally sound and that, you know, are 21st century buildings, you have to look at how to balance that out. And certainly, you know, our attitude is that the greenest building is one that's already there because you don't have to tear it down and find landfill to, to put all the put all the demolition uh, material. Yeah. So, so you know, you're talking about probably about the, the same amount. The question is, you know, what is required, uh, the fine-tuning, whether that site overlooking the Ottawa River is a good site from a security standpoint. And I, and I have no idea. Uh, that's, you know, really up to Public Works and the National Capital Commission to decide. What strikes me that uh, well, I think politically the issue is now is you have a leader of the opposition who there's no way he's going to put this make this part of his platform that he's going to you know sort of promise to beautify his future home if he happens Pierre Polyev happens to win you have uh, a current prime minister who seems dead set against being seen to spend this money you your suggestion was or there's been suggestions out there that he should just as you pointed out just set up a committee of people to say is it worth saving shall we spend the money here's our recommendations got nothing to do with you we're just going to make the decision for you and do it for the next prime minister sure yeah uh, you know that like i said we wrote to the prime minister twice suggesting that and we never got a reply and uh, nothing uh, nothing has ever happened to it you know it's going to take time to do it and uh, if for some reason they decide that it can't be used as a, either as a residence and or uh, a PMO then uh, then I think you know th- that committee could also come up with some other ideas of generally what it could be used for you know you basically have the interior, the interior is not designated. There has been so much done on the interior right. of the building that uh, it has changed quite dramatically from when it was built in the 1880s. However, there are there are some fittings in there that that I I'm under under the understanding that NCC uh, in the current work they're doing are sort of putting them aside to uh, be re-erected if. Uh, if you know, once a decision is made on what to do with the building, yeah, to me, twenty four sucks. I mean, it's not the world's most beautiful building. I've been there. It, 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 the grounds are beautiful. It's more about the history. I mean, the fifty years, you know, from nineteen fifty one until twenty fifteen, when it was last lived in, was an incredibly important time for this country. And it feels like so much history happened in and around there that to lose it seems like like you're disrespecting your own past to some extent. I mean, I know that sounds a bit nostalgic, but... Well, that, no, that's true. And that's something that really hasn't been made aware to the public. You know, there's been lots of decisions made there. And I think the history of the house, you know, as a site, as a historic site, apart from the building itself and what sort of shape it's in, is, uh, is quite significant. You know, it's like the old kitchen at the... Uh, What's now the Senate building that used right. to be the conference center, you know, where the Constitution was hammered out in the middle of, of the night. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's an important part of our history. I think it deserves to be considered for preservation, deserves to be preserved in some manner. And somebody just has to make a decision on it. Yeah, it certainly doesn't deserve to be neglected, I think, is what, what it boils down to as well. No, that, that's right. And, and like I said, you know, it, you know, we're, we're sort of calling this, uh, you know, an atrocious example of demolition by neglect and, and, and not really something that we should expect from our government. 
David Fleming, thank you so much. You're welcome. All right, we're not really supposed to play guess that sound on the radio, but guess that sound. That's the sound of an orca or orcas slamming into a boat off the coast of Spain earlier this month. Uh, They have They damaged a sailboat uh, recently, breaking its rudder, piercing its hull, adding to the dozens of orca attacks on vessels recorded so far this year off the Spanish and Portuguese coasts. Earlier this month, again, um, it was in the Strait of Gibraltar. That seems to where it's been happening. It sunk eventually. I think it sunk as they were towing it back in, not at the time. And, And again... There was, a, there was an attack two days before that, where a pot of six orcas targeted another sailboat in the Strait of Gibraltar as well. And gangs of killer whales have been causing chaos. I mean, this is the CNN headline. Gangs of killer whales causing chaos off the coast of Spain for the past few years, ramming into hundreds of boats, causing expensive damage. Um, so what's going on? Because, of course, I'm out here in Victoria. We have orcas. We see them. Um and I've never seen them ram a boat. Doesn't mean they don't, but I haven't. I haven't seen them. Um, Monica Wieland is, is with us. She's co-founder and director of the Orca Behavior Institute, which is about as close to me as you can get and still dial long distance into America. So thanks so much for your time tonight, Monica. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so this is, is this as uncommon? As, I mean, this has gotten a lot of attention all of a sudden. You know what the media is like, right? So, But what's going on? Yeah, this has actually been going on in that particular area for a couple of years now. And I think the fact that they, you know, one of the boats recently sunk has has gotten it a little bit more attention. But um, it's definitely not something that the whales here, you know, in the Salish Sea are engaging in. It's it's a specific behavior that seems to be occurring uh, just in the Strait of Gibraltar. So we know orcas are incredibly smart and very sociable. Uh, so what do you what do you think? What do you think's happening? Are they just uh, are they are they, is there some kind of revenge plot going on? Are they just having fun? What's what's happening with that pod? Yeah, the revenge plot makes good headlines, but I kind of doubt that's the motivation uh, behind this behavior. I have a feeling, you know, one whale just played with a rudder and found it entertaining or engaging and kind of told some friends about it. And uh, this is the latest fad for them. And while it's, it's concerning because they're causing damage, I don't think it's aggressively motivated on behalf of the whales. Uh, so listeners know the revenge one, if I remember the details correctly, is that one of the sort of matriarchs of the pod was was injured by a by a boat and then therefore took her revenge on it and then taught the rest of, you know, the kids followed suit and now they become sort of this sort of boat-hating pod of orca, which, so, which sounds ridiculous if you say it out loud, of course, right? It makes a good story, right? But um, I, you know, I don't think any sort of incident like that was directly witnessed where we know, you know, that whale was involved in something that preceded these incidents. So um, while orcas are definitely capable of complex emotions, um, I just haven't seen any evidence that suggests that this is a, a revenge plot. It would make more sense if it was just uh, adolescents having fun, right? But how does that work? How, how, how would that work? They would just sort of find something they enjoy doing and then just keep doing it? Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, a lot like human teenagers in that regard, where they're curious, they're maybe looking for trouble, they find something that's fun, and they tell their friends about it. And 
Um, from what I understand, it is mostly the juvenile whales that have been engaged in this behavior. There are adults nearby, but maybe not participating. And um, sometimes, you know, when whales get into trouble, the, the matriarch of the pod will, you know, discourage a behavior, but they apparently haven't seen any reason to, to stop doing this. Um, but the hope is that, you know, they'll find something else uh, maybe less destructive and move on to a different behavior. But, but so far, this one has, has been popular for a couple of years. Well, so these are, this is like the orca equivalent of all those kids hanging out in the park after dark, right? This is uh, up to no good. Uh, it's, pretty it's pretty much, I mean, yeah. But, but and is there anything else that could explain? I mean, we know, of course, that and because we talk about it where we are here in the Sailor Sea, where there's obviously concerns about boat noise and so on. But these are sailboats, right? So it's, they shouldn't be. I mean, I can imagine the environment they're in can be stressful for them, but that probably wouldn't explain it either. Right. It is a heavily trafficked area that they're in, but they are mostly targeting the sailboats. Um, so it wouldn't be, you know, wanting to quiet a boat or something like that. And it's it's interesting to speculate what's going on. But I really think, you know, a game or a fad is the best explanation, because certainly in this region, you know, we've given orcas reasons to, you know, show aggression towards us over the years with the captures for marine parks and the fishermen that used to shoot at them and, and things like that. And we've just never seen that sort of response from a killer whale in the wild before. So I think play behavior is uh, the most likely explanation. Right. Because I, I know we do see play behavior. That's common. Absolutely. And, you know, we have some shenanigans from the whales in these waters, too. Uh, some of our local big killer whales uh, are known for sort of playing with crab pots where they'll pull buoys underwater or drag the pots around. And I think it's a similar thing, just kind of a mischievous behavior that's fun for them. And uh, because it's a little less destructive, it doesn't get quite the same media attention. No, I, I was watching a documentary recently where, where, where they were, were sort of rubbing their sort of sliding into the rocks on the on the bottom of the water. They, they do lots of interesting stuff. Why is that? Because I guess we, we, we know we study them a lot, especially the residents where we are. Those are the, or the orcas that actually stay in and around where we are in Vancouver Island and the lower mainland and so on. Unlike the bigs that are transient that move around a lot. Um, but what is it? What, what is it? What does play bring them in their, in their social ability or their socializing? Well, these are long-lived animals. They're highly social. They have these lifelong relationships with one another. And so just like us, you know, they have big brains and they, they use them for all kinds of things. So we find with the different populations of orcas throughout the world that they have behaviors that are unique to their uh, population. So some of them are beach rubbers, and um, apparently now some of them are, you know, rudder disablers. So um, this this goes with being, you know, a highly intelligent animal with with culture within the group, and um, they, they develop some unique behaviors over time. Right. And when you say adolescent, how old would they be? Would they be teenagers? Would they be sort of in their, like, seven, eight years, nine, ten years old, older? Yeah, yeah, their life is really similar to humans in that regard. So, um, you know, kind of from age, you know, 8 to 10 up to maybe 16, 17 is kind of considered that juvenile or adolescent phase for a killer whale. Sounds familiar. Sounds Tell me about, I didn't know much about Spanish orcas. I mean, it, it makes sense that they, that they have, you know, it's just off the, the Atlantic, but I didn't realize they had pods of orca in, in that part of the world. Really, I, I mean, I knew they were out here, but I didn't realize they were there. Yeah, killer whales are found in every ocean of the world. And here in our area, you know, they're among the most studied. But 
there are populations of them um, everywhere, and some like this one are, are not very well studied, but it's actually another endangered population thought to be just a few dozen individuals, um, oh, really? sort of similar to our southern residents here. So, um, you know, killer whales as a species are, are doing quite well globally, but you find these unique populations and um, some of them are quite small. And, and this is one of those uh, small populations over there in Portugal and, and not a whole lot is known about them, really. Really? And, and, and are they resident? As well? I mean, these sort of just hang in the same sort of general area like our residents here do in, uh, in, in and around where we are? Um, they seem to have some seasonal movements, uh, from what I understand, that they uh, this time of year is when they're most commonly seen um, in the Strait of Gibraltar. And so I think that's why there's been kind of a spike in some of these boat incidents again. But um, again, as far as I know, you know, we don't know where all that population travels because they uh, haven't received, you know, the, the level of study that our whales here have. Interesting that it, that they wouldn't be as studied there, considering how I mean it's it's a densely populated part of the part of the world, right? Southern Spain and southern Portugal, they certainly have enough boats, right? I mean, there's enough boat traffic out there, and yet we study ours more than they study theirs. Interesting. Absolutely, and uh, you know, sometimes it takes an incident like this to motivate some of those studies because I think they've probably learned more about this population of orcas in the last four or five years, you know, than in the previous decade. So. Um, I think we're learning more as time goes on, for sure. Yeah, the, the, bad, the bad kids of the orca clans. How are, how, just as an aside, how are the southern residents doing here? For listeners who don't know, there's a population of, of orca that live in, in sort of in and around the Strait, the Strait of Juan de Fuca and kind of in and around the lower, the lower mainland, sort of that whole area around Vancouver Island. You can sort of picture it on a map. And uh, they live here. I mean, they stay here. They eat salmon. That's their thing. Uh, but they've been really, they've had some really bad years of late. How are they doing this year? Um, well, we haven't seen them for, or any of them, for a little over a month now. Um, oh, wow. So while they, you know, typically are pretty resident to this area um, in the spring, summer, and fall, that's changed in recent years uh, due to the lack of prey. And so we've seen them spending more time on the outer coast. Um, some of the pods actually do roam uh, down, you know, to the coast of Oregon and California. So they aren't completely resident just to this area here. Um, but in the weeks ahead, we expect them to return and then we'll, you know, get a better idea of, of how they're doing. Hopefully there's some new little ones in the group and hopefully we haven't lost any. Um, but as of right now, we're just kind of waiting for their return. Right. And hoping they haven't spoken to their Spanish, haven't been getting any, any emails from their Spanish counterparts on, on things to get up to this summer. Right. Um, I've definitely heard already concerns from, from people here who are worried really? about going out on the water and, and having their boat be attacked by orcas. And so I just really want to emphasize that. I think this is a very specific behavior to those orcas in Portugal. And we have not seen anything similar here. And I don't think there's any reason to expect that the behavior would spread um, around the world to all orca populations. Of course, someone would see that and then immediately think, yes, of course, I should have thought, of, I should have brought that up. You've been getting calls already about this. Of course you have. <laughs> yeah, there's, uh, people are concerned and... That's, you know, some of the damage control, I guess, that we really want to do is we don't want orca's reputation as a whole to sort of be harmed by this, that they're, they're not an animal to be feared. You know, there's no cases of wild orcas uh, attacking humans. Um, they're, they're intelligent, they're creative, they're social, but uh, ferocious is, is not really one of those adjectives to describe them. So uh, there's no need to, you know, be concerned about encountering whales in this area in terms of the of your safety or the safety of your vessel.
so I guess that's sort of, <laughs> you sort of dread the headlines because there's been a lot, I was looking it up obviously today before we spoke and earlier in the week, there's a lot of them. There's a lot of headlines about this suddenly. There's a lot of them and people really like the word attack, right? <laughs> so true, I'm, true. I'm sure it, it, it feels that way, um, you know, for the people who are on board. I, I don't doubt that it's scary, but, um, you know, if they Honestly, if they wanted to be doing more damage, um, they probably could. Um, so this is, you know, relatively benign in terms of disabling rudder cables and, and that sort of thing. Um, they haven't seemed to have been, you know, targeting the people at all. It really seems specific to the rudders on the boat. So, um, yeah. you know, they've we've given them opportunities to to do us harm in the past, and they don't. And so I, I don't think that um, there yeah. there's a reason to be afraid of them. Yeah, this isn't this isn't Richard Dreyfus and so on on the you know and Jaws, right? This is something. Uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, I I thought that that juvenile sort of playing around thing made the most sense. Even when you hear it, they just kind of tap, right? They kind of give it a bit, little jump, but they're big, right? They're big and they move fast, so that must be what's happening. Yeah, and I mean, an animal of that size and you know making contact with your boat and potentially disabling it so you can't navigate. I mean, that's that's scary for sure, but. Yeah, the whole revenge storyline I think would would make a great movie, but I don't think it's the reality. Oh, I think you. I think someone's already thinking about that great movie, Monica. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me.